Hi, it's Mark Sisson. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast. It's time for another show dedicated to the world of keto. Check out ketoreset.com for details about my New York Times bestselling book and send your questions to info at ketoreset.com. Uh-oh, check it, check it, check it out. We got a bunch of Q&A. Don't make me shout. Thank you so much, listeners, for writing in. Is it info at primalblueprintpublishing.com? I believe so. So please send your questions, comments, feedback on the show. And we have some really interesting stuff Sorry, some of these are a little bit old, if you know what I'm saying. We haven't done a Q&A show for a while, but still highly relevant and important for all listeners to absorb. The first comment, especially because it's from Robert Lebrec, with a little compliment for the show. Hey, Brad, I love listening to the podcast. It's right up there in my top 10, maybe number one. I like your sense of humor. And when you talk about your woman, Mia Moore, your topics are right on point. You have so much insight asking all the questions that people on the know want to know. Thanks again for putting out great content. P.S. I'm in the Keto Reset Mastery course, and I've really enjoyed watching those videos. Right on, man. Thanks a lot. Start the show on a high note. Can't hurt, right, people? Okay, Andy comes in next and says uh, he enjoyed the show that I did with Craig Marker. And boy, that's some great stuff. So go back and listen to that one because uh, Dr. Marker has really inspired me. I give him a ton of credit for inspiring me to totally revamp my template for doing high-intensity training, particularly my sprint workout, where I have now uh, shortened the duration of my typical sprint and increased the rest interval tremendously between sprints. And it allows me to perform at the highest level with each effort. So if I'm doing eight times 70 meters, uh, each one of them is awesome because I rest for at least a minute in between these very short efforts that maybe take 10 seconds. So I'm getting a really uh, explosive training stimulation, getting that optimal burst of fight or flight adaptive hormones into the bloodstream, testosterone, growth hormone, and the desirable fight or flight stimulation that goes away very shortly because the workout is short in duration, uh, serving to make me more resilient for all forms of stress that I face in life, including the next sprint workout. So the key to me was shortening the duration of my sprints so that I don't engage in that cellular destruction that's required to fuel a maximum effort of any kind, whether it's a kettlebell swing or a sprint. When you start to go past that 20-second mark, your body really can't sustain maximum effort for longer than about 20 seconds. And to try and do so, you are basically frying the structural elements of your cells to combust quickly and provide that energy to help you keep going. It's called disassembling and deamination of the cellular proteins. Uh, that's fine if you're in the Olympics and you're Wade Van Niekerk trying to break the world record. Uh, search for him on YouTube. He ran a 43.03 in the Rio Olympics from lane 8 in the 400 meters, shattering one of the greatest world records, one of the greatest performances of all time. And basically, if you watch the video, you will see that he is sprinting the entire way around the track is for the first time I've ever seen anyone that powerful and pretty much uh, sustain that maximum output for a whole lap because he's the greatest ever in the world running a lap. Big difference from the person out there in the gym uh, trying to listen to the instructor telling them that they're going to do 10 sprints of 30 seconds during our spin class or doing a kettlebell swing uh, maximum effort for 30 seconds and 30 seconds rest and then do it again and then do it again. And once you do eight of those, guess what? It's a pretty awesome workout. You're going to feel pumped up afterward, full of the stress hormones, the endorphin-like chemicals that flood your bloodstream and give you a pain-killing sensation uh, in response to that massively stressful event. But because you're asking your system to perform at maximum output for too long, right, for more than 20 seconds, and also with insufficient rest in between these maximum efforts, what you are doing is a breakdown 
down depleting session that's going to lead to sugar cravings, energy level swings in the hours afterward, and that muscle damage and that other side effect, that other component of ammonia toxicity caused by the disassembling and deamination of the cellular proteins, that's going to kick in and you're going to feel like crap somewhere around 24, 36, or 48 hours later. And as I talk so impassionately uh, about my own uh, health awakening, fitness awakening, um, this was a regular pattern for me for over a decade where I'd do these awesome sprint workouts, I'd feel great, I didn't need that much rest because after all, I'm an endurance athlete and I can bounce back and do another 100-meter sprint or another 200-meter sprint with such a, just a short rest interval. Uh, that's great at the time when you're pumped up doing uh, a, a fight-or-flight workout performance, but the repercussions, the fallout is pretty gnarly. And so for a decade or more, I would wake up the next day after my sprint sessions and feel somewhat like I'd been run over by a truck. My arches were aching because I uh, like to do my sprints barefoot. Uh, my calves were so sore, sore to the touch even, where I couldn't even hardly jog for two or three days as my body uh, tried to recover from this cellular breakdown event. Now, in contrast, when I'm doing the slightly shorter sprints with long rest periods in between them, uh, I wake up the next morning and I feel fine. Of course, I felt like I just did a sprint workout and I don't need to do another one for a while, but now I can routinely perform a couple good sprint workouts a week or maybe, uh, let's say, six or five or seven in a month's time rather than three or four, which I had only been able to sustain uh, for the previous decade because the recovery time was so long. So we want to tone down those destructive breakdown sessions, no matter who you are at whatever age, but especially people in the advanced age groups like myself, uh, there's no call to go and get super duper sore and super duper broken down in the name of fitness. So all that uh, rambling was coming off the first line of Andy's message where he said, thank you for the great show with Dr. Crave Marker. Uh, so back to Andy's letter, continuing. I'm a big follower of Primal Endurance, Maffetone, and Strong First. That's Craig Marker's uh, contribution there, strongfirst.com. He puts a lot of content out there. So it was great to see everything fit together so nicely. I also used to play a lot of golf in high school, so the whole speed golf thing is also very interesting. Here's a question for you. Do you have any links or resources to people who have used the primal endurance principles and philosophies to train for 100 milers? I just completed my first two 100 milers this year, one February, one July, after I took a break from running. I'm looking to help structure things over the next few months with the goal of doing another 100 miler uh, in the months ahead. I've been putting a priority on strength training and training for longevity rather than speed, and I've had great recovery as a result. I just turned 40 in August uh, in beautiful, sunny Vancouver, Canada. Oh boy, what are we going to do about training for 100 milers? Of course, the primal endurance approach is optimal for that kind of goal because it helps preserve your health in pursuit of these ambitious fitness goals. And by any measure, running 100 miles is going to be very, very challenging for your overall general health. It's also going to be uh, predictive of accelerating the aging process, cellular breakdown, uh, stress the endocrine system, the immune system, uh, because the goal is so daunting. So you got to do it right and you got to take it easy, as easy as possible on your body. Avoid those chronic overstress patterns that can make anybody fall apart, but especially someone who's doing the crazy workouts necessary to run 100 miles. So, I mean, you mentioned some things here in your story about uh, not doing much speed and <laughs> all that. And again, if your main goal is a 100 mile finish, uh, there's really no justification for spending much energy at all doing anaerobic exercise. That's the explosive, short-duration, high-intensity stuff that is a great suggestion for uh, just about every general fitness enthusiast and most athletes that are competing in events that are lasting, you know, maybe up to two hours. You're still going to benefit from speed workouts. Uh, gosh knows we did a ton of those when we were training for Olympic distance triathlon, which was all-out racing at a high speed for two hours. But when you're trying to 
last out there for the entire day. It's 100% aerobic activity. And so your best return on investment is going to be from uh, improving the functioning of your aerobic fat burning system, building those fat burning muscle fibers and energy producing enzymes throughout your body so that you can keep going and going without breaking down and falling apart and feeling the muscles uh, tighten up and start to function poorly. So the goal of doing the vast majority of your exercise at maximum aerobic heart rate or below is going to get you right into uh, good performance for the race. I know there's some in the ultra endurance scene that feel like there's a place for once in a while going over to the track and doing some 800 meter repeats or maybe even doing some shorter sprints like I described with my 70 meter explosive efforts. And I would say, uh, a big fat may be there because when you sprint, you do give some interesting training uh, stimulation that can even help an ultra endurance athlete. First of all, you refine correct technique because when you're sprinting, you are obligated to execute beautiful technique, uh, perfect shock absorption and energy transfer so that each stride can generate maximum propulsive force off the ground. Uh, watch my viral YouTube video, uh, Brad Kern's Running Technique Instruction up at that random park in Portland, Oregon. Who knew, Brian, that day when we were just fooling around filming some technique drills that it would go viral, baby. So watch that video because it explains some of the rationale here where if you can get good at executing good technique uh, by sprinting, you will uh, carry those technique attributes into even running very, very slowly. So there's still a way to trot along for 100 miles using the foot, the dorsiflex foot properly, the stride pattern, maintaining a balanced center of gravity over your feet at all times, uh, not letting your center of gravity uh, jerk back and forth or, or forward and backward due to um, overstriding or the common mistakes, heel striking that a lot of runners make, especially slow-moving ultra-distance runners because there's minimal penalty. There's minimal immediate penalty for poor technique, right? You're jogging along at 12-minute mile. You're not going to notice that you're caving your pelvis into the ground a little bit rather than maintaining uh, that explosive uh, impact off the ground and dorsiflexing your foot. So if you can get good at refining good technique, you will uh, benefit, especially in the latter stages of these long distance events where the muscle fatigue causes a breakdown in correct technique. Same thing for your posture, the carriage of your upper body, your arms, all these things can begin to fatigue over the course of a hundred mile race. So for the ultra endurance athlete to get into the gym once in a while and do some upper body work, I like working with the stretch cords, the tubes that you hook onto a, a base and you uh, do assorted pulling uh, to engage uh, the large muscle groups of the upper body, fantastic exercise, just to build that general fitness. So if you can step into, uh, let's say, the extreme workout patterns that are necessary to prepare for 100 milers, going long on the weekends for several hours, uh, getting your mileage up like all the ultramarathon people uh, believe to be critically important, uh, we can second guess that. I'd rather have uh, better stress and rest patterns and not worry about the count of mileage. But what we definitely need to do without dispute is to simulate the competitive experience in training. So if you're going to go get on the starting line for a 100 miler, you best be doing some practice sessions of 30, 40, and 50 miles, right? To get your fuel uh, dialed in, to make sure the muscles, joints, connective tissue are resilient enough to keep pounding along for hours and hours and hours. So those are going to be the centerpiece of your training program. But if you can come into, let's say, your 50 50-mile preparation training run a couple months before the, the big race uh, with a good core stability and strength because you've been working out a little bit in the gym, uh, you're going to maintain that good posture and you're going to prevent this complete breakdown that you see so commonly, especially uh, in the 26.2-mile marathon uh, by sort of novices that are trying to extend that far and they're just shuffling along for the final six miles because all their muscles have fallen apart, broken down. So imagine in the latter stages of a marathon when your hip flexors have blown out and your lower back and your hamstrings and even your deltoids and things like that, and you're just kind of shuffling along. Guess what? You're still having to generate energy 
to move your body toward the finish line. So your heart rate still might be at 137 beats per minute with this horrible form where your feet is slapping onto the ground. It's remaining on the pavement for too long. So you're not getting any explosive force off the stride. Uh, your pelvis is caving into the ground. You're losing center of gravity. It's moving and jerking with every stride because your muscles are falling apart. Well, you're putting out all this energy and you're going really slow because your technique has fallen apart. Uh, especially this is clear in swimming where you can get a big, strong, powerful uh, bodybuilder person to jump in the water and thrash that water with extreme power and force and be the slowest person in the whole pool because they don't have good technique. So we want to do whatever it takes to refine and preserve good technique even as you fatigue. And that's where the complementary uh, training elements really come into play. Now, this can get a little tricky because when you're preparing for a 100-miler, you want most of your energy devoted to those long-distance aerobic sessions, performing those successfully and recovering from them successfully. So if you're in the gym doing a set of box jumps and rope climbs because Brad Kearns and other uh, yappers on podcasts are telling you that this stuff is helpful for ultra-endurance athletes, and then you're trying to recover from that, and then you're stepping up on the weekend and running 40 miles, it might become... Uh, the very undesirable overstress pattern. So one thing that's recommended and detailed in the Primal Endurance course and in the book is the uh, segmentation or the periodization of your training program where maybe six months out from the race or four months out when it's not really important to uh, ramp up like crazy, uh, you dedicate uh, several weeks to focusing on the high-intensity stuff and de-emphasizing the endurance volume. So let's say you have a three-week binge where you're in the gym a couple few days a week. You are doing those box jumps and rope climbs and core work and pulling the cords and putting a lot of energy out into that type of fitness stimulation. Maybe you're going and doing some of the Brad Kern's recommended eight times 70 meter sprint workout with long rest periods and getting good at sprinting. Uh, after a few weeks, you can back off that and then usher in a new phase where you're really focusing on building up your volume, extending the duration of your longest workout. So maybe your benchmark is a 20-mile run when you're four or five months out, and then you're going to try to go do a 30-mile run. Or if you want to work it by hours, you know, you're going to try to stay out there for five hours, six hours, and you're going to need a handful of those long-distance preparatory runs before you are ready to step on the starting line for 100. So that was a really long explanation, but hopefully very valuable to anyone who's considering a long distance or ultra endurance event. It's mostly about getting aerobic efficiency going, but if you can't preserve good technique, even as you fatigue, you have to expand that lens and start to implement other forms of training that are going to make you more resilient, tougher guy or gal when you start to get tired and slow down. How dat? How dat? Maciej Kirka writes in, Hey, love your podcast, Brad. I'm new to the keto diet. I bought the Keto Reset Diet book a week ago, but I can see results already in one week. Nice! Mental clarity, no hunger, positive body image. I've trained for 5K before I started dieting. Question, can you effectively train for 5K to achieve a PR while on the ketogenic diet? Is working out at 180 minus age or running those short sprints that you talk about, uh, is that going to be enough to run a fast 5K? Can I get some support for my 5K training as a ketogenic enthusiast? Do you have a training plan? Should I instead do a longer race? Very good, provocative questions. Let's try to cover those one at a time. If you train for 5K properly, emphasizing your aerobic development, doing the vast majority of your workouts uh, at or below the 180 minus age maximum aerobic heart rate, of course you can succeed with a ketogenic diet. However, there is some nuance and refinement that's necessary to respect, and we've heard a lot of talk about athletes, uh, the role of carbohydrates in a high-performing athlete, trying to balance the objectives of maintaining that ketogenic pattern as well as performing and recovering from what a lot of times can be a very uh, strenuous workout. So when you're in those fat-burning heart rates, 
you do not have a huge requirement for carbohydrates. There's not a lot of glycolytic metabolism happening when you're jogging along at 180 minus age heart rate. So a pure endurance athlete can easily succeed with keto and probably, arguably, gain an advantage by being ketogenic with the diet because you have a reduced need for glucose during exercise when you are fat and keto adapted. You're a fat-burning machine. You can go all day. Listen to my awesome podcast with my man, Dude Spellings in Austin, Texas, where he talks about his amazing achievement of doing a double crossing of the Grand Canyon. That's almost 50 miles with tens of thousands of feet of elevation climbing going from south rim down to the bottom up to the north rim at 7,800 feet or something down to the bottom again which is only like 1,200 feet and then back up to the south rim. He attempted to do that effort with no food, no calories. He finally cracked. He admitted that at mile 38, his legs were feeling like empty of glycogen. So I think he uh, hit some coconut butter or something that was uh, high fat to sustain him. He got to the top rim, uh, the south rim, finished the event. Uh, his his crew and his uh, training partners were um, all ready to dive into a huge stack of uh, hot pizzas that were delivered for the occasion. And instead, dude decided to fast overnight to turbocharge his fat-burning and ketogenic function and get all the widely validated benefits of anti-inflammatory, immune boosting, and especially just cellular repair enhanced because he did not eat the pizzas. Most people can't imagine doing that, especially after running uh, for 14 hours through the Grand Canyon. You kind of deserve a pizza, don't you think? But in terms of Uh, recovery efficiency. Dude woke up the next morning and felt fantastic. He said he felt better with less soreness and less swelling than he did on his previous crossing of the Grand Canyon 13 years prior when he was fueling with energy gels and all that kind of stuff, even though he was 13 years younger. He's pushing 50 right now or pushing 50 when he did the event in 2019. So it's an amazing story to illustrate the incredible potential of the ketogenic diet to fuel endurance performances and help speed recovery. I also talked to Zach Bitter about this on our podcast and also our extensive interviews in the Primal Endurance Master course where he talks about going keto, especially during the off-season periods where he's trying to build up his uh, volume, prepare for these record-setting events. He's the American record holder at 100 miles, having run an amazing time of 11 hours and 45 minutes around a high school running track. Yes, folks, 100 miles around the track, that's 400 laps, maintaining a pace of somewhere around seven minutes per mile all day long. Absolutely astonishing performance. Uh, He is known to... uh, go into a carnivore-ish dietary pattern. He does the podcast with Dr. Sean Baker, carnivore leader. It's called Human Performance Performance Outliers. So he's big into the low-carb scene. Uh, we'll add back more carbs when he's in a competitive setting or you know building up for an important competition because he's running so fast. This is a guy who's running six-minute miles uh, you know, for hours on end that he's going to uh, require more carbs and be more glycolytic than the average uh, amateur enthusiast who's running much slower and burning mostly fat. So when you talk about 5K, now for most people, they're thinking, yep, I got to start running some speed workouts. I got to do some glycolytic training to be at the very best on 5K. But even for 5K, and Unless you're up at the elite professional level, most of your improvement potential is going to come from improving your aerobic efficiency. So getting faster and faster at that very gentle pace of 180 minus age. Uh, You didn't report your time in here, but if you're trying to get down from 1548 to 1507, yeah, you're going to have to go to the track and hit some intervals and doing things like quarters and halves and things that are highly glycolytic. But again, for most people, just working on that low end and getting more and more efficient burning fat is going to translate directly into improved 5K performance. The 5K itself is something like 80% aerobic and only 20% contribution from the anaerobic energy system. And when we, uh, just as uh, Macy has uh, reported, uh, quoting me, when you're doing those short duration sprints, of coming short of the uh, cellular destruction and breakdown that occurs when you're doing longer quote-unquote sprints. I shouldn't even call them sprints because you're not going at full speed after you exceed 20 seconds. When you're doing those really short stuff, guess what? 
those don't have a huge uh, carbohydrate demand either because the workout doesn't last that long. You're only doing, like I said, I like to do eight times 70 meters. I used to talk about doing four times 100 meters. That's what she quoted me from times ago. Uh, but these are short duration stuff. You're generally using uh, different energy systems like pure ATP instead of glucose uh, as you get below 30 seconds. Once you hit 30 seconds, you're kicking into uh, mainly glucose metabolism. But prior to that, a shorter duration effort is actually different fuel, ATP and lactate. So boy, um, on both those occasions, you're not going to need to go home and refuel with massive doses of carbohydrate. Now, I'm going to respect the uh, the other point of views here where the general pattern of trying to sustain an ambitious endurance training program and live a busy life could possibly be increasing the carbohydrate demand and could very likely be an individual challenge where you're going to have to do trial and error and experimentation to optimize the level of carb intake that you need uh, for, for peak performance. And please also keep in mind that if you're a fit individual with low body fat and uh, devoted uh, ambitious fitness training program, you stand to benefit less from the extreme carbohydrate restriction required by keto than someone who is uh, dealing with metabolic damage, excess body fat, high-risk blood factors, and things like that. So if you already have some decent metabolic flexibility, uh, maybe you don't have to stress as much. If you're trying to lose excess body fat, different story. Uh, the simplest and quickest way there is to uh, lower insulin by lowering carb intake and also throwing in some sprint workouts that have a huge stimulus for fat reduction, especially if you have hit a plateau. But a seemingly popular strategy is this targeted carbohydrate intake where if you are performing some exhaustive workouts, really strenuous workouts, maybe you can uh, adjust by increasing your carbohydrate intake on that day in and around these workouts. And boy, there's so much controversy and differences of opinion here that one thing I've been kind of uh, recommending lately or feeling uh, really comfortable about is to ask the individual to honor your natural appetite. So if you're sitting around at night twiddling your thumbs and dreaming of two giant sweet potatoes smothered in butter, that might be a really uh, valid indication that you're uh, going to benefit from uh, slamming some carbs on that occasion. I think our appetites are really um, refined, our cravings, and we can pay attention to those and listen to those and make sure you separate an actual physical craving uh, from boredom or emotional responses or triggers to food or, you know, dipping into bad habit patterns where you rewarded yourself with a pint of Ben and Jerry's. Because remember, athletes, people listening to the show, people who care about their fitness, you have an increased demand for nutrient density in the diet because you are pushing your body and challenging it. So I know we give out hall passes all the time to people with uh, low body fat to go and slam whatever they want at night because it's not going to uh, show up on their waistline the next day. But when you're eating this nutrient deficient food and crowding out the nutrient dense foods that can help you with performance and recovery, that might be something to uh, really take a look at and ask yourself, how badly do you need to slam down these nutrient deficient calories? I know we want to enjoy our lives and celebrate once in a while, but be really mindful when it's time to celebrate, make your treats really well chosen. And I'm a fan of uh, indulging in something that's homemade, made with love and care and appreciation during a celebratory event. So yeah, I'll have a slice of cheesecake that you just made that just came out of your own home kitchen, but you're not going to catch me eating that nasty stuff that's served up by the chain restaurants with a lot of sugar and additives in it. A uh, huge difference, right? Same with uh, you walk, go over to visit grandma and you, you smell the fresh baked chocolate chip cookies coming out of the oven. <laughs> you just did a nice 5K PR that morning. Of course, you're going to enjoy a few chocolate chip cookies and make grandma feel happy. But oh my gosh, stopping at the convenience store and deciding to grab a bag of uh, highly refined industrial seed oil and sugar and fructose syrup and all that garbage that's in the commercial products, huge difference. Shouldn't even call it the same thing. All right, how's that? Is that enough on the topic of training for 5K, Massiege? Um, I think I hit all the various questions. Okay. 
Okay, here comes Larry. Thank you for the informative and entertaining podcast, Brad. Thank you, Larry. I always get a couple nuggets of information from Q&A shows. My question is regarding eating junk food on the occasional food binge. Here's my background. I've been fat adapted for 10 years, following the primal lifestyle after reading the primal blueprint. Oh my gosh, you know, it's been 11 years since the primal blueprint was published. Wow, a lifetime in itself, huh? Okay, so Larry's at my ideal body weight and composition, doesn't have to count calories or macros, never get hungry, I can fast effortlessly, uh, including on a daily basis, and I also do five-day water fasts every few months, equals badass Larry. That's impressive, man. Can't say I've ever gone that long. I guess I should try it so I can join the badass club, but I really uh, respect the discipline and the focus there to be able to execute a five-day water fast. Okay, Larry says, over the years, he's lost his cravings for certain foods. I do not miss breads or pastas at all. I love my eggs, meat, fish, veggies, and nuts. However, I do get occasional cravings for sweets, and once every couple weeks, I go hog wild. Maybe I'll eat a half a gallon of ice cream, maybe a whole plate of cookies. I'm on vacation. I might eat junk for a couple days straight, sort of like your popcorn binges, but times 10. (laughs) Then I quickly jump back on my keto diet. I feel no ill effects at all. I go right back to fat burning with no break and all the benefits, energy, clarity, body composition. Then 10 days, two weeks later, I'll binge again. I've been living in this cycle for six years. I feel like I'm having my cake and eating it too. My body weight and body composition are the same as long as I go right back to healthy keto after my binge. My concern, do you have any concern with this eating pattern over the long term? Should I, should I have any, uh, worries about long-term effects. I've been doing this so long, it feels completely normal. My blood work is great too. Wow, what an awesome story and something for all of us to reflect upon. Pretty wild, man. The first thing that comes to mind for me is that you are a unique and highly disciplined individual. So I would not try the Larry strategy at home unless you are uh, throwing down a bunch of five-day water fasts every few months. Then you can go join him on his two-day uh, ice cream binge and slamming half a gallon of ice cream. So I guess, Larry, I would say that you're sort of an extreme uh, enthusiast where you have the extreme discipline and devotion to restrict all foods for a five-day water fast, and then you have the extreme departure uh, downing a half gallon of ice cream. And I would speculate that sort of a counterbalancing, a compensatory mechanism uh, for all that uh, restriction that you're uh, showing uh, normally or as your as your baseline. I mean, a ketogenic diet is pretty darn restrictive, especially when you look at society around us. So when you're tempted and you want to uh, jump out of the, the picture, you jump all the way out. Sounds like you're enjoying the heck out of it. And so I'm not going to give you uh, a whole lot of uh, stern scolding uh, or anything of that nature. This is maybe something that works for you and your particular individual personality. Uh, if you listen to my show on the Get Over Yourself podcast, the very first show with Dr. Peter Atia, you know, one of the leading self-experimenters and longevity experts in the world, a very extreme, focused, disciplined, high-performing guy, and he's talking about feeling guilty because he reaches over and finishes the macaroni and cheese uh, off his kid's plate. It's like a habit, a reflex where he's just, you know, downing a bunch of uh, junk that he ordinarily wouldn't eat because he's letting him letting his hair down. That's a funny one because he's bald. Letting his hair down once in a while. And possibly people like Peter, people like yourself, need to let the hair down once in a while, bust loose and um, unregulate from the tightly regulated life. So this could be considered a healthy thing. Uh, but again, uh, for anyone who's uh, on that uh, anywhere near the high-risk Uh, category for disordered eating uh, would probably uh, be frightened away from doing anything uh, near what Larry describes because uh, for many, many people, it's pretty difficult to recalibrate after these uh, binge cycles. And that is not only emotionally, psychologically, but also possible difficulty recalibrating right back into fat burning. But you are checking every box necessary where you feel like your body composition right. You can go right back into keto. And so keep doing what you're doing unless, and here's my kind of uh, final thought on the matter. I mean, you wrote into the show to ask if it was okay. So if you feel any sort of negativity 
about these patterns, maybe that's something to look at as well. But from a uh, physical standpoint, uh, you can't uh, can't criticize it too much if the guy has good blood work, good body fat, and he's enjoying himself while he's uh, doing these binges and enjoying himself while he's adhering to this uh, strict uh, ketogenic diet. Wow, trip out. Told you we had some cool questions on the show. All right, thanks for sharing, Larry. Here comes Kat saying, uh, I've been unable to find answers to my question, so hopefully you can help. I found the one meal a day intermittent fasting pattern to be most optimal for my digestion. I eat from 6 to 8 p.m. I have a lot of trouble with digestion. I've been working with a functional medicine doctor, uh, but in the meantime, this one meal a day pattern really seems to help alleviate debilitating GI symptoms. I'm also eating 90% carnivore since I can't tolerate much fiber right now. So I get about six to seven ounces of meat in that single meal. Uh, However, in Primal Body, Primal Mind, author Nora Gedgaudis, the brilliant Nora Gedgaudis, high respect there, uh, she recommends uh, getting six to eight ounces of concentrated complete protein per day, best consumed in divided amounts, not exceeding 25 grams per meal. Uh, folks, maybe you've heard this as well, that our body can't really efficiently digest more than a hit of 25 or I've seen 30 grams of protein in a single dose. So when uh, Kat is doing the one meal a day program and getting all her calories at one meal, is she consuming too much protein whereby she's overburdening her digestive system uh, by eating that all at once? Uh, Dang, Kat, I mean, I would say maybe, but at the same time, keep your eye on the ball, put your central focus on what works best for you, especially your biggest concern, which is the debilitating GI symptoms. So what works? Sounds like it's working now. And I wouldn't worry too much that you're going over this uh, possible limit of optimal protein assimilation at a single meal. Not a big deal. And that's um, a totally non-expert opinion. And I I will also uh, acknowledge that Nora's accurate there and referencing good science. So what? (laughs) Okay. You're eating one meal a day. Uh, Enjoy yourself. Get some protein in there. Okay. Um, One other comment on that. You're saying you're eating from 6 to 8 p.m. So if you're concerned about overburdening your digestive system with too much protein, I would also add in there that that might be a little bit late if I'm assuming you're going to bed soon after 8 p.m., so maybe 10 p.m., maybe 11 p.m. So if you are eating a ton of food, a ton of protein, and it's uh, nearer your bedtime than, let's say, a 5 to 7 window to eat your dinner, maybe that's something that you could tweak a little bit and alleviate a little bit of your concern about overburdening your digestive system. Uh, Kat says she's experimented with dividing protein by eating lunch and dinner, but digesting is so uncomfortable right now that I'm going to stick with this one meal a day. Good job. Okay. I'm also trying to put on muscle and bone due to losing a great deal of both of these during a recent bout with C. diff. That's that nasty uh, bacterial infection that kills 30,000 people a year, uh, mostly elderly in hospitals. It's a uh, drug-resistant, antibiotic-resistant infection. Terrible stuff. Uh, Chloristidium difficile is the full name. People call it C. diff. So congratulations for uh, bouncing back from that. Keep up the good work. And um, she's done fecal transplants, which is a magical cure for this terrible condition, getting more and more popularity, uh, but just trying to put her life back together, put on some more muscle and bone. Um, at the same time, she says, I'm trying to upregulate, repair, regeneration, and autophagy to heal my body to come back from this infection. And so I think she's mentioning that at the end because I think one meal a day is contributing to those goals, especially with your fasting for that long period of time. Oh my gosh, isn't that nice to upregulate autophagy as we know that to be effective and reduce inflammation and hopefully heal the digestive tract that's been uh, traumatized by the C. diff infection. Now, if you're trying to put on muscle and bone and you're only eating protein once a day, you're only eating once a day, 
um, that might be a little more difficult than if you were to consume uh, food at other times. So hopefully you can manage both those goals. Get your digestive function working better such that maybe you can handle a little protein uh, at midday or something else to kind of uh, contribute to those goals of getting uh, getting your um, lean mass back. How about that? Good luck. Here comes Kev Mason. I started off paleo journey at 285 and I went down and down and down to 199. Isn't that cool? Not 200. He got down to 199. That is an 86 pound weight loss. Congratulations. Absolutely awesome. Um, this is the primal bear out there in the UK. I did a podcast with him. Thanks for writing in Kevin. It was a long time ago. Sorry about that, but we're covering your question now. I'm fasting with black coffee and water until like 2 PM and then maybe a few nuts or a slice of cheese and then an almost carbohydrate free dinner. Most of the time, a carnivore ish, most of the time, maybe some avocado or lettuce. I do some yoga. I do CrossFit with a barbell, powerlifting, walking a few kilometers to bring my son to kindergarten. How awesome is that? Get that kid out walking, man. That's number one health practice you can imagine is more daily movement and involving your young ones in the mix there because, oh my gosh, the children of today's generation, it's so sad. They're born with a screen in their face and they're going to go their whole lives without that connection to nature that we had automatically when there were, mo- mobile de- when there were no mobile devices in years and decades past. Okay, so he's doing all these good uh, workout efforts, uh, got his diet dialed in with fasting until 2 p.m. Sleep seems good. Stress could be lower, but I have three kids and a house to look after. So I guess normal levels. So I'm kind of stumped here because he wants to lose 20 more pounds. All right, people, what do you think he should do? He's hit a plateau. First of all, first thing is congratulate yourself, man, because getting from 285 to 200, that is a huge, huge deal. And if you can sustain that weight loss, for one year, two years, three years, you're starting to ascend into the rarefied category uh, of people that can can have sustained weight loss after getting uh, well out of the uh, normal healthy BMI range. So to get that thing down to 199, if you uh, can't get that 20-pound goal for a couple years, I honestly wouldn't worry about it too much because you've made such a fantastic change. And frankly, the body has assorted homeostatic mechanisms in place, compensatory mechanisms against weight loss. Uh, This is fight or flight. This is survival. This is our human genetics. This is the metabolic set point theory where we tend to uh, drift into a similar weight category, even with Uh, extreme measures taken, we kind of just head back up to uh, wherever we were before. So the way to combat this and to sustain that weight loss and then aspire to dropping that extra 20 pounds is multifaceted. Uh, But the first one really is, I think, that mental stress, that anxiety that you're hit a plateau, uh, to put that aside for a little bit and be grateful for the amazing results and success that you've achieved. That's the big one. Then we can talk about uh, the real juicy part of the um, question is how to get that next 20 pounds off. And uh, Kevin emphasizes that he's pretty sure he's in ketosis. He's a fat-burning beast. Um, So what's going on here? He's kind of stumped. I like to throw into the mix uh, the explosive high-intensity sprinting because this sends a powerful genetic message to drop excess body fat because the act of sprinting, and I'm talking about weight-bearing sprinting especially, uh, but if you're not ready for that, if you have injury concerns or you're a novice, you can sprint in a low or no impact manner, but I encourage everyone possible to work toward, progress toward eventually doing high-impact running sprints because when you are doing high-impact weight-bearing running sprints, you are experiencing an extreme penalty to your performance for carrying excess body fat along. You're carrying excess body fat along when you're trying to run uh, 15, 20, 25. Usain Bolt runs 28 miles an hour at top speed. So yes, a human can run 28 miles an hour. Pretty awesome. But when you're running that fast and carrying that body fat, it's a huge performance limiter. So as you train to increase sprinting competency, 
you will send the proper genetic signals to upregulate fat burning and remove that excess body fat that's been stuck there uh, despite your excellent dietary efforts. Uh, but I should have uh, prefaced this by saying that, again, this is still predominantly uh, a matter of minimizing insulin production in the diet, but Kevin's already gotten there, so I jumped to the sprinting. But for anyone listening, if you're stuck at a plateau, uh, put your hand on the dial, turn down that uh, carbohydrate, total carbohydrate intake, and that's going to be your surest path to uh, turbocharging fat burning. And if you're already doing well there, Kevin says he's keto, then you can add this element of high-intensity sprinting and expect to make another performance breakthrough. Uh, Beyond that, we have these high-stress lifestyle patterns that push us back in the direction of uh, glucose burning and fat storage. And those are things like insufficient sleep. Those are things like uh, mental stress, uh, FOMO, fear of missing out, um, you know, personal and relationship conflict, workplace conflict, things that stress us out, activate the sympathetic branch of the, of the autonomic nervous system, the fight or flight, uh, attributes. And when you're in fight or flight mode in a chronic manner, you're stuck in that sympathetic nervous system function that is associated, that is correlated with glucose burning. So either going to get it from your diet or you're going to get it from gluconeogenesis. That's the conversion of lean muscle mass into glucose to fuel your energy needs when you're a stress head. And what we want to be is a beautiful balance of sympathetic and parasympathetic function. Parasympathetic nervous function is uh, nicknamed rest and digest. So when you can engage in parasympathetic promoting activities throughout the day, that would be a break to walk around the office courtyard, sit by the fountain, look at the birds, put your phone away and just engage with nature, do some deep breathing, do a quick meditation exercise. Uh, Other things that engage parasympathetic function are foam rolling, uh, general relaxing in your sauna or your uh, spa or uh, getting a massage, all these things that, that put you out of that high stress mode and into chill mode, parasympathetic function is associated with fat burning. <gasps> Imagine that. Amazing. So if you can get more parasympathetic stimulation in your daily life, then you can also add in that sprint stuff. Oh my gosh, you are going to be dialed in. And I will because Kev's an advanced enthusiast. The Primal Bear's got a great following there uh, in the UK and a great podcast with a lot of prominent guests. I will throw in top secret number three as we end the show. So if you're still listening, you have a beautiful, wonderful treat here. And this is what I believe is about to emerge as one of the most powerful fat reduction catalysts we've seen in a long time, and that is exposure to cold. That's right. I've been doing a lot of research. I'm working on a book. It's called Take the Plunge (laughs) about my wonderful fascination with my morning chest freezer cold plunge. And there's some good science that exposure to cold helps turbocharge fat burning around the clock. So brief exposure, therapeutic exposure to cold, such as starting your day with a cold shower or getting in a cold tub, doing something more ambitious, jumping in the cold lake uh, just for an optimally short period of time where you don't actually uh, get too cold because when you get too cold, guess what? You slow down your metabolic function as a reaction. So I'm talking about as I've shared with you many times, my morning chest freezer cold plunge, the water temperatures in the high 30s, and I'm in there for four or five or six minutes. So I get this optimally brief burst of cold exposure, and then I work to naturally rewarm in the minutes or hours after. I'll either head down the street for my unfrozen caveman runner session where I jog to rewarm the body. You can watch my YouTube video talking about all that, or I'll just uh, putz around the house and go about my busy day uh, working at the computer in the studio and rewarming naturally over time. And what that stimulus does is that it will it is known to accelerate fat burning, but the glitch here with the uh, exposure to cold is that it can also stimulate an increase in appetite. Because when your body gets cold, you may have experienced this yourself. After a day out there chopping wood in the snow or skiing, you seem to have an increased appetite when you've been cold for a while. So the trick is 
The hack here, if you will, is to do that cold exposure, whether it's a cold shower, cold tub, whatever. Uh, Ray Cronice succeeded with this. He lost 27 pounds in six weeks by kind of living a cold, adapted lifestyle, uh, walking around in a t-shirt in the winter, taking three-mile walks in 30, 30-ish weather, underdressed, uh, sleeping with just a sheet or nothing in a cold room. And he had a massive fat reduction, he believes, strongly associated with that uh, devoted cold exposure. But what you do here is you uh, kind of ignore any appetite stimulation that you experience and allow your body to transition over to accelerated fat burning. And I'll talk about this in my book, but what happens to me is I do my morning cold exposure. And then uh, within the next one to two hours, I will experience a significant spike in appetite. I will hear my stomach growling. That is the spiking of the prominent hunger hormone ghrelin. Ghrelin gets your stomach growling. That's a quote from Dr. Kate Shanahan. And this spike of ghrelin is prompting me to go eat a bunch of food because I've been uh, subjected to cold. So if you can kind of uh, power through that hunger spike without eating. Then after about five minutes, it wears off really quickly. I thought it was 20. Uh, Dr. Kate said five. So uh, somewhere in the ensuing minutes, the ghrelin spike will go away. The powerful sensations of appetite will normalize and your body will kick over into accelerated fat burning. Uh, until you get your next meal, right? So that could be uh, a wonderful little hack. Uh, I have a show called The Fatty Popcorn Boy Saga uh, published on Get Over Yourself Podcast where I talk about uh, losing uh, eight pounds of excess body fat that I was shocked appeared on my body out of nowhere one day. I couldn't believe it. I attributed that to uh, evening popcorn binges that had gotten out of hand over the previous six months. But I lost that eight pounds in a very short time. I think it was uh, six weeks. I can't remember. But I think the uh, morning cold exposure was a central element of that and fasting until 12 noon. So having the commitment to not eat any calories until 12 noon interspersed with uh, a cold bout and also a lot of times uh, working out in the morning were the catalyst to turbocharge my fat burning. And then finally uh, eating in a carnivore-ish pattern during that time period. So my carbohydrate intake was really low and my dietary satiety was really high. So everything was smooth and working well. There you go, Kev. More than you bargained for. Thank you so much for writing in. Check out the Primal Bear on Facebook and his podcast. And thank you so much for those of you who contributed by sharing your story, your questions, info at primalblueprintpublishing.com. Have a great day. Talk to you soon. Hey there, Primal Blueprint listeners. Did you know that Primal Kitchen collagen peptides help support hair, skin, and nails? Well, we offer a variety of collagen products to suit everyone's palate, from unflavored to mango pineapple or golden turmeric, to our keto matcha or chai tea collagen latte mixes, and much more. Visit us at primalkitchen.com and start fueling your day with collagen peptides.